Hello and welcome to Misty 101 podcast. Class cleansing is killing London, as poor people are removed from communities like Vermin. A new report has highlighted the aggressive social cleansing that is rampant in three London boroughs, and the devastating effect it has on people who are displaced. It seems the working class are not welcome in Britain's capital. Gentrification is not a new phenomenon but it is clear that it is out of control in London. As with many cities, it is a process the UK capital has been familiar with for some time. Poorer communities have been moved out of neighbourhoods in favour of a better class of people for generations, and in the early 1960s sociologist Ruth Glass coined the term «gentrification» as the old Victorian properties of Islington were bought for a song by the affluent middle classes. These once grand houses, which have fallen into disrepair housing society's poorest, were renovated and modernised, with the aid of local government grants, by many of the middle-class gentrifiers. What had become slums were transformed into million-pound properties and are now among the most sought-after houses in the country, with Islington firmly established as a political, media and cultural enclave. It is no coincidence that Tony Blair, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn have all lived in the original gentrified borough. The working-class residents who lived in the squalid, overcrowded conditions were moved into newly built council housing, as the consensus between political ideologies after World War II continued. Millions of social housing properties were built around the country, allowing many working-class people to live in dignity for the first time, with indoor bathroom facilities, clean running water and a sufficient number of bedrooms for children and parents to sleep separately. Today, though, there is no political consensus to provide good, affordable housing for working-class people, just a laissez-faire attitude that it should be left to the market. In fact, we can look back to the early 60s, with the slum clearances, the high-rises and the council house building, and think, for all the faults, that these were the good old days compared to what is happening now, as was evidenced by a report last week from the Runnymede Trust and Class Think Tank titled, Push to the Margins. It describes contemporary gentrification in Tower Hamlets, Wandsworth and Newham in London that is alarming and aggressive, with working-class people being violently displaced. And what is especially concerning is that it is working-class people from black and Asian communities who seem to be particularly affected. They are being pushed out to the furthest points of the capital, away from transport links, meaning that if they work in central London their commute for minimum wage jobs becomes ever longer and more uncomfortable, in packed buses and tubes. Contemporary life for working-class people in Britain means longer, more expensive, insanitary commutes. This is nothing more than what I call, class cleansing. I undertook extensive research on this process in London between 2013 and 2018 a five-year ethnography of what happens to working-class people who are being crushed by what is not now, gentle, gentrification, but a horrific Manhattanization process. 
No longer is it the middle-class gentrifying parts of Victorian London, but instead we see a global elite army of property developers, aided and abetted by local and national politicians, who are inflicting this class cleansing. They are removing working-class people from communities as if they were vermin, with no thought or care of where they go, and there is no real economic or social solution being put forward by any of the mainstream political institutions. Meanwhile, the council estates are being bulldozed to make way for luxury towers soaring into the sky, soulless, lifeless and disconnected from the streets and the people of the city. Four years ago, I lived in Tower Hamlets and was part of a housing movement trying to bring attention to the class cleansing occurring in London. I was contacted by a woman who worked in a private lettings agency in North Nottinghamshire, who informed me a woman from the borough of Barking and Dagenham had just turned up at her office with two IKEA bags stuffed with her belongings, and two small children. She had been sent to Nottinghamshire with no more than an address by the housing official. Since arriving in the UK from Nigeria ten years previously, she had never lived outside London and over the years had found it impossible to find somewhere affordable and safe to live. She had a master's degree, but was unable to put it to use because without a home and stability you cannot find and secure a decent job. That takes headspace and commitment, which you simply can't have when you are living out of carrier bags, being moved around with two kids. Barking and Dagenham Council had an arrangement with a private landlord in North Nottinghamshire to house families that London had no room for. The council had paid the deposit and two weeks' rent up front, and the mother and her children were housed in a flat in an old mining village that was remote and had very few services and little public transport. I made contact and visited her, and she told me she desperately wanted to get back to London, she was totally isolated. This poor mother and her children had been cleansed out of London, not good enough, not rich enough, not productive enough for Britain's capital city. Her story did not end well, she became very ill and her children were put into care in Derbyshire, and I lost contact with her about two years ago. But this is not an isolated incident. I have met women and children who have been forced out of many successful cities throughout the UK. It is a violent, abusive process, and it is the state, local councils, and bureaucrats who are inflicting this misery on working class families without being held to account. The former mayor of Newham, Robin Wales, summed it up years ago, when talking about a group of young mothers from the Focus E15 hostel in Stratford as it was being closed down and they were about to be cleansed out across the country. If you can't afford to live in Newham, you can't afford to live in Newham. As temperatures soar this week and we see images of rich people floating in sky-high glass-bottomed swimming pools looking down on London, the symbolism of the gap between those at the top of society and those at the bottom has never been so stark. It is unequal, unfair and cruel. For all the talk about coming out of the pandemic and rebuilding society, are working-class people included in this vision? I doubt it.
Bin Laden once plotted to kill Obama, as he thought a Biden presidency would create chaos and aid the Taliban. The Al-Qaeda leader made his prediction in a 2010 letter to a key lieutenant. It pains me to point out that, on this issue at least, he's unfortunately been proved completely right, albeit a few years later than he hoped. In May 2010, the leader of Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, wrote a remarkable letter to one of his acolytes. In it, he urged his lieutenant to plot to kill President Barack Obama, because a Joe Biden presidency would result in a crisis, as the then-vice president was totally unprepared for that post. The assassination attempt on Obama's life was to be made by two teams of terrorists, who would also target General David Petraeus, then head of the U.S. Central Command, if either man visited Afghanistan or Pakistan. Here is the relevant part of the startling letter, which was seized from bin Laden's compound by U.S. troops and has been written about before, and is published on the website of the West Point Military Academy's Combating Terrorism Center. I asked Sheikh Saeed, Allah have mercy on his soul, to task Brother Ilyas to prepare two groups, one in Pakistan and the other in the Bagram area of Afghanistan, with the the mission of anticipating and spotting the visits of Obama or Petraeus to Afghanistan or Pakistan to target the aircraft of either one of them. They are not to target visits by U.S. Vice President Biden, Secretary of Defense Gates, Joint Chiefs of Staff, Chairman Mullen, or the Special Envoy to Pakistan and Afghanistan Holbrook. The groups will remain on the lookout for Obama or Petraeus. The reason for concentrating on him is that Obama is the head of infidelity and killing him automatically will make Biden take over the presidency for the remainder of the term, as it is the norm over there. Biden is totally unprepared for that post, which will lead the U.S. into a crisis. As for Petraeus, he is the man of the hour in this last year of the war, and killing him would alter the war's path. So please ask Brother Ilyas to send to me the steps he has taken into that work. Before we go any further, I want to make it clear that I am no apologist for either Bin Laden and his crackpot cult, or his warped ideology. Indeed, I was probably the most outspoken mainstream UK politician about how we should have no truck with extreme Islamists, and for that I was pilloried by the left, unfairly in my opinion. However, the fact that bin Laden was prepared to call his attack dogs off Biden is telling. He clearly wanted to see President Obama and General Petraeus, who the following month became the overall commander in Afghanistan, dead. Yet he would not countenance an attack on Biden. And why was that? Could it be that bin Laden suspected, even back then, that Biden was the weak link in the chain? 
After all, Biden was opposed to President Obama's troop surge in 2009, which was designed to protect Afghans from Taliban attacks through the deployment of an extra 17,000 U.S. troops. Although the success of the surge is somewhat debatable, Biden's opposition is not. Brett Bruin, a former member of Obama's National Security Council, remembered that Biden was pretty darn clear on Afghanistan. He said we should get the heck out of there. It was revealed last year that Biden was also opposed to the special forces operation that eventually took out bin Laden in 2011 and recovered the bin Laden letter, among other documents. Bin Laden was clearly determined to see Biden in the White House because he thought the VP was completely out of his depth more than a decade ago. It also must be taken into consideration that this was when Biden was still lucid and could make coherent arguments, which is sadly not the case today with the 78-year-old. Biden may well have been right or wrong back then, but at least he was clear-headed when airing his opinions. Today, Biden is clearly incapable of holding his train of thought. So much so that he dodged journalists' questions following his speech on Tuesday, with the most likely reason being that he could not use his pre-prepared prompt cards. So instead of answering journalists' questions off the cuff, as Trump did on a weekly basis, he chose to do a sit-down interview with Bill Clinton's former White House communications director, George Stephanopoulos, on ABC. I hate to say it, but it is undeniably true that what a prescient bin Laden predicted ten years ago has come true. Biden being president has caused a crisis, and one that has been to the Taliban's favor. As to his being totally unprepared for the top job, well, even the president's fiercest supporters cannot deny that he has made a complete mess of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. The sight of poor Afghans hanging on to the wheels of a U.S. Air Force plane scuttling out of Kabul airport, and then falling from the sky to their deaths, will forever be remembered. Satan works in mysterious ways newscast on Australian TV interrupted by devil-worshipping ceremony Australian TV channel ABC has accidentally shown its viewers footage from a satanic ritual during the middle of a routine newscast. The blunder was linked online to a current court case about teaching Satanism in schools. The excerpt from the news broadcast, posted by ABC Media Watch on Twitter, begins with anchor Yvonne Yong introducing a story about Queensland's proposal to make it a criminal offence to injure or kill police dogs and horses. As Yong pauses awkwardly, the audience sees silent footage of masked officials in suits. The broadcast then unexpectedly cuts to what appears to be the middle of a satanic ritual. A person donning a black robe proclaims, Hail, Satan, while flanked by a large illuminated upside-down cross. The broadcast cuts back to Yong, who, after a brief moment of silence, switches to a different story as if nothing had happened. 
Australian TV channel ABC has accidentally shown its viewers footage from a satanic ritual during the middle of a routine newscast. The blunder was linked online to a current court case about teaching Satanism in schools. The excerpt from the news broadcast, posted by ABC Media Watch on Twitter, begins with anchor Avon Yong introducing a story about Queensland's proposal to make it a criminal offence to injure or kill police dogs and horses. As Yong pauses awkwardly, the audience sees silent footage of masked officials in suits. The broadcast then unexpectedly cuts to what appears to be the middle of a satanic ritual. A person donning a black robe proclaims, Hail, Satan, while flanked by a large illuminated upside-down cross. The broadcast cuts back to Yong, who, after a brief moment of silence, switches to a different story as if nothing had happened. It is not clear whether the satanic footage was part of another story, or had come from elsewhere, and ABC has not commented on the matter. Several people online linked devil worshippers with members of the Noosa Temple of Satan, which is currently suing Queensland's Education Department to have religious instruction classes taught in schools. According to Australian media, the Satanists, led by Robin Bristow, also known as Brother Samael Demo Gorgon, want the federal government to scrap its religious discrimination bill and replace it with a Human Rights Act. The Noosa Temple of Satan retweeted the clip, adding that, Satan works in mysterious ways. Commenters on social media, meanwhile, joked that the newscast was an unfair slight on Satanists, and hoped for the clip to stay with 666 retweets, which it has now surpassed. Anger in India after, gang rape, and forced cremation of nine-year-old Dalit girl. The horrifying case of an alleged gang rape, killing and forcible cremation of a nine-year-old girl from the Dalit community in India, historically one of the most oppressed in India, has sparked public anger, massive protests and become a political controversy. The girl was the daughter of a poor ragpicker couple who supplemented their meagre income by begging at a shrine in national capital Delhi's Nangli area. On Sunday, the girl's father asked her to get water from the cooler of a nearby crematorium. When the girl did not return after an hour, the mother went to the crematorium, only to find her daughter's motionless body lying on a bench, her tongue blue and with bruises on some parts of her body, according to accounts. The crematorium priest, along with three others, approached the woman and told her the child had been electrocuted while fetching water and insisted on a swift cremation for the girl. Go home and sleep. Don't shout and cry about it, the priest told the mother, according to her. The priest also reportedly offered to perform the girl's final rites. When I went there he informed me that my daughter was dead. I asked how she died. I told him to dial 100 and call the police. He refused, the mother told news channel NDTV. He pressured me to cremate the body immediately and dissuaded me from calling the cops. 
He said if you call the cops there will be a long court case, my daughter would be taken to the hospital where the police and doctors would take out her organs and sell them, she added. The priest then began performing the cremation, which involves burning the body, with the family being forced to sit at a distance. The family, however, protested against the cremation, forcing the involvement of several other villagers, who doused the fire. All that subsequently remained of the girl were her feet, some of her scalp and a portion of her hip, according to New. News website News Laundry. The four accused, including the priest were subsequently arrested after family protests. Since the body of the girl was largely cremated, medical examiners could not ascertain anything based on the remaining parts of the body, according to Ingat Pratap Singh, a senior Delhi police official. Police forensic units will now test other evidence, including bodily fluids from the girl's clothes to examine claims of sexual assault. The victim's mother has also alleged that officers made her and the husband wait in separate rooms at a police station for several hours, and alleges police beat her husband. The shocking incident has become the focal point of local fury and national outrage, sparking protests in the area. The Chief Minister of Delhi, Arvind Kajriwal, subsequently visited the family after being accused of remaining silent over the alleged crime. He announced a 10 rupees lakh compensation for the family and ordered a judicial inquiry. The incident has also snowballed into a political controversy, with Rahul Gandhi, a leader of the opposition Congress party, visiting the girl's family. I spoke with the family, they want justice and nothing else. They're saying justice is not being given to them and that they should be helped. We will do that, Mr. Gandhi said. The four accused, meanwhile, face charges under laws including those that cover child sex abuse and crimes against scheduled castes and tribes. The incident has been compared to one that occurred in the northern Indian state of Uttar Pradesh in September last year, where a Dalit teen was hurriedly cremated without the consent of the parents after being allegedly gang-raped and killed. India has a systemic problem of crimes against not just historically oppressed communities, but also against women and other genders. Members of the lower castes are particularly vulnerable to such crimes, with the country's National Crime Records Bureau NCRB, pointing to more than 45,000 cases registered against scheduled castes, with 3,486 cases coming under rape in 2019. The number of criminal cases for crimes against scheduled tribes was more than 8,000, with 1,110 of these being rape cases, according to NCRB data. Blue jeans and feminist and lesbians. Slovenly, drab, unkempt, slatinly, blowsy, many adjectives come to mind to describe most women who wear jeans. Since I noticed this trend, I am appalled by its prevalence. At least half of the women I see are wearing jeans. Occasionally they are with men who are also clad in blue denim, emphasizing the unisex character of this proletarian garb. But usually these women are alone and don't look happy. Often they seem angry and lost. Usually they are talking on a cell phone or listening to their iPod.
Men, if you're tempted by such a woman, her genes signal that you may have to deal with her id, gender identity disorder. Her genes are saying, I don't want to be a woman. I don't want to look good for men. I fear and distrust men. I want male prerogatives. Feminism which espoused women's rights actually has driven femininity underground, torn the sexes asunder, and stripped women of recognition for being wives and mothers, roles essential to their fulfillment, to men, and to children and society. Young women were told they were rebelling against oppressive patriarchy and inequality and all things bad. They never imagined they were being betrayed by feminist teachers and politicians, who are intent on breaking up the family and abandoning us all to state and corporate control. Google, Women's Studies, and Rockefeller Foundation, and you'll get 93,000 hits. Don't you think the world's biggest monopoly capitalists may have an ulterior motive? The Rockefellers are central bankers. In the words of insider Carol Quigley their ultimate goal is nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled, by the central banks, acting in concert. Tragedy and Hope, 324, under the guise of defending homosexual rights, heterosexuals are under ruthless and hateful psychological attack in the mass media and from government. In the UK, Australia and California, the terms mom and dad have been banned from schools and children are encouraged to experiment with homosexuality. They want us to be homosexual in the sense that gays usually have sex but don't marry and have families. They want to destroy the family because lonely confused people are easier to manipulate. This is the real story behind the sexual revolution. I imagine women would wear dresses and skirts if there wasn't a subtle feminist stigma against looking feminine. Thus women can make a statement by wearing a skirt or dress. They can show they aren't afraid of men, and may actually like them. Kate felt him grab her arm from behind her and yank her into the hallway. She offered no resistance. She did not even care if anyone had seen them. He led her down the dark hallway to the back of the house towards the east wing. He said nothing as he walked with angry force along the hardwood floors. His large black boots echoed throughout the empty space as they struck the floor. The glass double doors to the conservatory creaked loudly when he opened them. Moonlight flooded the room filled with exotic vegetation, casting shadows all around them. He whipped her body around to face him as he shoved her against the wall. His gaze was fierce and his body shook from frustration. Kate felt herself grow breathless. In all the years she has known him, she had never seen him this angry before. Looking back on it now, she may have pushed him too far this time. He looked crazy. He took a step towards her and placed his hands on either side of her head on the stone wall. Kate flinched slightly. He leaned in closer and starred at her with an intensity that struck to her core. At this moment she knew her plan may have been a bad idea. His breath was labored like a bull ready for battle. It blew Kate's dark chestnut hair around her face as it tickled her cheek. She did not dare give it attention, she did not dare move her gaze from his. The light green of his eyes looked so animal-like in the moonlight or maybe it was the glare coming from them at her. They stood out against the black of his hair that was hanging in his face. He didn't blink, he didn't move, he just stood over her and stared at her, almost daring her to turn away from him. His bare exposed chest rose and fell before her. The white shirt he wore had been ripped open. Kate saw a drop of blood strike it as it fell from his forehead. 
I, I think you may have misunderstood what Kate's words trailed silent when his hands balled into fists on either side of her head. This was beginning to make her uncomfortable. She wished he would just start yelling at her already and get it over with. The way he was looking at her was unlike him. He never professed his love for me to anyone including myself. Am I to wait until he is fit to tell me and miss out on fun or meeting new people? So I danced with the one man he hates more than my brother. I do not see what all the fuss is about. Who is he to tell me who I am to accept a dance from? He never offered himself. I had told him last month I was not going to wait forever and he had said don't, and now he has the gull to become cross with me for listening to him. I have had about enough of this. Are you going to say something? Kate asked. He didn't move. I am not a mind reader you know. She searched his gaze for any change. I will not allow you to treat me in this manner. He leaned in closer to her face. Oh no, he finally said with a deep tone. No, Kate said. She narrowed her blue eyes at him. I think you will allow me to do what I please with you Katie. He glanced down at her lips. His body moved nearer to her. She could not push herself against the wall any further. The tense anger coming off of him was paralyzing. She needed to look away. His gaze burned into her, through her and left her fighting for a steady breath. He slid his hands up the wall and rested on his elbows at her head. With the rise of her breath her chest grazed against his. He leaned a little closer. So you like to flirt because that is what you were doing with Beckham, Katie. He watched her eyes closely. I most certainly was not. Kate shouted. You were and you knew what you were doing. He roared at her. Her lips parted at what he said. You knew I was watching you too. You knew how I would react to it, but I suppose that's what you wanted to begin with, isn't Katie? She remained silent and gazed down at the floor. He wanted answers damn it. You like to play games and flirt. Okay then. He pulled her chin up to face him. Then flirt with me. Come on Katie, tease me. Craving a vegan sausage roll now. Anti-vaxxers go plant-based as law firm says it could be illegal to force COVID jab on vegans. Anti-vaxxers have vowed, perhaps jokingly in some cases, to go plant-based after a British law firm said vegans could be exempt if companies decide to implement compulsory COVID-19 vaccination rules. On Thursday, law firm Lewis Silken told The Telegraph that it was likely ethical vegans would be protected by employment law if employers were to implement rules mandating vaccinations for their staff. The firm said that, some ethical vegans may disagree with vaccinations on the basis that they inevitably have been tested on animals, adding that ethical veganism has been found to amount to a belief by employment tribunal. Lewis Silken's legal advice has been welcomed by many vaccine skeptics, who remain fearful of the widely administered and life-saving shots.
became vegan overnight. Since hearing about exemption from vaccines, one person said on Twitter, while another wrote, Him I could kill for a cucumber sandwich right now, adding that a juicy smoky bacon sandwich doesn't sound so good anymore. Others said they now had cravings for vegan sausage rolls while some presented more serious arguments, demanding, why aren't my beliefs in natural immunity and health protected? Several people suggested that the number of vegans in the country would swell following the legal advice. Noting all the vaccine skeptics vowing to adopt a plant-based diet, one person joked, and suddenly all us anti-vaxxers are like this doesn't taste too bad, sharing a meme of someone scoffing grass. Some people were clearly upset by the reaction to the Telegraph story. While many claimed that most vegans were probably in favor of taking the shot, one noted, the most important aspect of veganism is the overall reduction in suffering, if you are also vegan or vegetarian, please get the vaccine. Another branded the comments, depressing, claiming that anti-vaxxers can't even empathize with a human being let alone an animal, others said they didn't understand the debate, adding that very few people were actually ethical vegans. It's a vaccine. You're not injecting a hamburger, one person stated. In recent months, a number of British firms have announced plans to implement a no-jab, no-job policy. Several bosses have claimed that their company's ability to offer their services safely would be compromised if their staff weren't inoculated against COVID-19. Outspoken Pimlico Plumbers boss Charlie Mullins said on Wednesday that he'd be willing to go to court to defend his vaccine policy, which is due to come into force in September. Crucified badger found nailed by its feet to a tree. Police have launched an investigation after a badger was found dead and nailed by its feet to a tree. The body of the animal, which is a protected species under the Protection of Badger Act 1992, was discovered several meters up a tree in the Nantlin area of Denby, Wales on Wednesday morning. The rural crime team at North Wales Police has launched a probe into the death. A disturbing image released by the force shows two nails pinning the animal's feet to a branch. PC Richard Smith, of the Rural Crime Team, said, We can't yet confirm what the cause of death of this animal was, but we have submitted the body for a post-mortem. Incredibly, badger persecution is still practiced in North Wales and we will continue to work with partners in tackling abhorrent incidents such as these. Over 140,000 badgers have been killed in the badger cull since 2013, with 38,642 killed last year in a bid to stem the spread of bovine tuberculosis, which experts claim the creatures have spread in the countryside. George Eustace, the Environment Secretary, has branded culling unacceptable and in January set out proposals for Natural England NE, to stop issuing intensive cull licenses for new areas after 2022. The Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs last year gave the green light for tuberculosis BTB, TB cattle vaccination trials as part of plans to try and develop and deploy a cattle vaccine by 2025. Speaking at Prime Minister's Questions last month, Boris Johnson backed plans to end the badger cull. 
He told MPs, we do think that the badger cull has led to a reduction in the disease but nobody wants to continue with the cull of a protected species, beautiful mammals, indefinitely. I do think it is a good thing that we are accelerating other elements of our strategy, particularly vaccination. I think that is the right way forward and I do think we should begin, if we can, to phase out badger culling in this country. We are asking for your support. You can make your donations on our website www.misty101.com on podcast page. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. We thank you for being with us and your support. Goodbye till next time.